And uh, I apologise, there was a little bit of a mix-up with the, the Bible references that I gave um, to Sally to read and uh, there were a few little bits that I realised I'd missed out in that story that we'll, um, we'll update as we go through. So Joseph is here in, in Egypt. He's risen to the highest place uh, apart from Pharaoh himself and as we saw last week, this is all the Lord's plan. The Lord was with Joseph in the depths of prison and now he's with him in this highest place so that uh, not only may his people come to Egypt but so that many may be saved. One thing we've been seeing through uh, the stories of these patriarchs is there's, there's a lot of name changes um, that God makes and uh, people are challenged to think about their identity. Who am I? Um, Peter pointed out how Jacob was backed into a place where he had to say, I am Jacob, I am the deceiver, the supplanter, the cheater. And then God changed his name to Israel. And uh, through the story you'll see that sometimes he is referred to Jacob, sometimes to Israel as that transition is happening, um, taking place in him. His sons also wrestle with this. Like their father, uh, his sons as a group are described in different ways through the story. And in 42, 1-5, they're described in three ways. They're Jacob's sons in verse 1. Verse 3, they are Joseph's brothers. And then in verse 5, they're the sons of Israel. These three descriptions actually mirror the trajectory of the whole story. They begin in Canaan as sons of their father Jacob. Now, they are off to Egypt where they will relate to Joseph, their brother, and then eventually they will represent the whole nation of Israel that will come from them as their whole family are reunited and reconciled in Egypt. This is the first time in the story they're called sons of Israel but they're only ever called sons of Jacob one more time in the rest of the story. From now on they are the sons of Israel. Moses is doing this because he wants us to start making this transition from seeing these men as simply members of Jacob's family to being the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. It's at this point that the promise moves from being passed from one man to his son, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. And it now begins to form the nation. The promise is passed not through one son. Jacob thought maybe that was going to be Joseph. But it's through all 12 sons to the nation that will come from them. Remember, the main purpose of this Joseph story is to set the scene for the Exodus story. When those who would know themselves as the children of Israel would see the first part of that promise fulfilled, the promise to Abraham, you will become a great nation, that will happen while they're in Egypt. Then they'll see the second part of the promise, the promise of the land, as they're taken out of Egypt and take it into the promised land. And there was a third part of the promise, if you remember what it was, offspring, the land and the blessing 
The promise of blessing, not just that they would be blessed, but that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now this part of the promise is kind of previewed a few times through Israel's history, but only comes to complete fulfilment in Jesus Christ. When through him, through that pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the message of the Gospel is sent from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, this is now 20 years since Joseph last saw his brothers. He was 13 years as a slave in Egypt and then there were the seven years of abundance that was uh, predicted in Pharaoh's dream and two years, this is, uh, we see this is now two years, well the end of this story is two years into the seven years of drought. Now in that time, 20 years, his appearance would have changed. He was now 37 years old, not the 17 year old teenager that they would have remembered. He would now be clean shaven. He'd be dressed in his Egyptian official's clothes. He would have been speaking Egyptian. And as we heard last week, his name had been changed to an Egyptian one. His brothers knew that he'd been taken to Egypt by the slave traders, but they really wouldn't have expected to see him at all, let alone alive. The average life expectancy in ancient Egypt was 30 years for women and 34 years for men probably because a lot of women would die in childbirth. The wealthy would have lived longer. The poor would have lived shorter, a shorter life. So there's, there's ancient Egyptian literature that talks about men in their 30s who are considered old. But what about a slave? A slave was at the lowest, the lowest level of society working hard, a slave would have been fortunate to even reach their 30s. So it makes sense that his brothers didn't recognise him, even if he still looked like Joseph. That's the last thing they would have expected to see. We're not told his motives for keeping his identity from them, but what we'll see is it's actually all part of God's plan. I want to focus in today on uh, the three encounters that Joseph has with his brothers, each of which ends in tears. And as we look at each encounter, we'll get some insight into how the Lord works uh, in his people um, and through Jesus Christ. This first encounter with his brothers... Joseph speaks harshly to them, he uh, treats them, he accuses them of being spies and uh, the little bit we missed was that uh, initially he said, you're all here, send one brother back. Um, but then he overheard them speaking. He didn't, they didn't realise that he could understand Hebrew. So they were talking and he was hearing them uh, saying, This is all happening because of what we did to Joseph. God is bringing judgment, justice to us. They were were recognising their own sinfulness. 
So he brings them back out of prison and he changes the plan. He says, I'm just going to keep one of you and the other nine of you go back. But this is a test, a test to see whether they will act to save the life of their brother Simeon who's left there in prison in Egypt. Will they abandon him in Egypt like they abandoned Joseph? Joseph isn't acting cold-heartedly here. This is emotionally hard for him. His plan was, as I said, to detain nine, send one to get Benjamin. But he, he's heard their conversation, he's heard that they realise that they deserve justice for what they did to him 20 years earlier. What a thing for these men to carry in their conscience for 20 years the guilt of their past. Maybe for some people 20 years is a short time. Some people carry in their conscience unresolved guilt for their entire lives. Unresolved guilt and shame can shape not only our lifestyles but also our theology. These brothers' guilt meant that they looked at their misfortune and they interpreted it as the consequences of their sin. I'm not sure if I've got the... If you have a look at verse... In 42... Forty-two, verse twenty-one says, "Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us." And Reuben answered them, "Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Did you not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood." But notice how in that. They make no mention of the Lord. This is why this distress has come upon us. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They're describing it almost in terms of karma, what goes around comes around, as if there's some kind of abstract impersonal principle. That means if you do something wrong, at some point wrong things will happen to you. Now we know because we're reading this story that, and we have all the background information that this isn't mere karma. The Lord is behind all that's happening. For sure, the Lord is the judge of all the earth. He brings justice. He punishes the sinner. But his justice is not just a simplistic tit for tat. There will come a day when every injustice will be made right. And the scales of injustice will be put back into balance. However, until that day, God's action of justice in this world is always his action of grace. He gives people a taste of what full justice demands, yet he holds back. He shows patience. He calls us to repent, to 
to receive forgiveness and deliverance from the wrath that is to come. So they thought it was just this justice coming upon us, now we're doomed. From the law's perspective, this was his action of grace, to to speak to their consciences, to make them realise their sin and their great need uh, so that they will be ready to receive his mercy. What's the solution to regret and shame from the past? Well, it's only found in the cross of Jesus. It's only there that we can see that the justice we deserve for our guilt has been borne by him. So there need be no impending sense of a day of reckoning, no fearfulness about the future, no constantly looking over our shoulder or walking on eggshells just in case something bad happens to us because of our past sins. The cross sets us free from asking the question, what did I do to deserve what's happening to me? Because the answer to that question is, you actually deserve way more than what's happening to you for your past sins, but all your past sins have been taken away by Christ. So what's happening to you now, whether it's good or bad, is is actually now being used by the Father to work out his good purpose in your life. He's using what you are going through now, not as a punishment for your sins, but to make you more like Jesus. In not so many words, this is the lesson that Joseph's brothers will learn. This is not about some impersonal laws of justice, but about the Lord saving them and fulfilling his promise to bless them and to use them in spite of them. So as I said, Joseph isn't acting from a cold, unforgiving heart by accusing them of being slaves and then holding Simeon and sending the others back. When he hears his brothers fearfully speaking about this reckoning for their sins, he can't bear it. It's at that point that he turns away from them and weeps. It's at that point that he changes his plan. He knows if they never return from Canaan, then at least there will still be ten brothers back with his father Jacob instead of only two. And then he secretly puts their money back into their bags as they leave. I don't think this is part of the test. I think this is simply an act of generosity. Maybe he's thinking it will cause them to see that this, this official in Egypt is acting kindly towards them. Maybe to make them more likely to return. But when they get back home, they discover the money, their tit-for-tat theology of justice just actually makes them more fearful. This is more of this justice that's coming upon us. So humanly speaking, this first test initially seems to fail. Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. So as far as he's concerned, he's now lost another son. He lost Joseph 20 years ago. Now he's lost Simeon. After a few months, Joseph would have given up on waiting for his brothers to return 
couldn't just send them off an email saying, are you coming back or not? He would have concluded that they had abandoned Simeon like they had abandoned him. But that's humanly speaking. The famine that the Lord had sent continues. The Lord's plan hasn't finished. They think maybe this is the end of it, but the Lord is still working. And so when their two years of supplies run out, they reach the point of desperation again and this leads to the second encounter with Joseph and his brothers, this time including Benjamin. Did you notice that in this second encounter, Joseph treats them not as spies, but as if they were official delegates from another nation? He takes them into his own household. He has a meal prepared for them. He makes sure their donkeys are fed. He makes sure that they know that they're not being held accountable for that money that was returned into their sacks. And he reunites Simeon with them. And I think in all of this, Joseph is clearly longing for his identity to be revealed. He's longing to be reconciled to his brothers, but he knows it's not quite the right time. But the emotion of seeing his younger brother is too much. This time he doesn't just turn away from them. He must rush out of the room and he locks himself in his bedroom until he's able to compose himself and wash his face and come back in again. These are clearly not just tears of happiness at seeing his brother. This is the pent-up grief and longing of 20 years of separation from his family and it's beginning to be released as he sees the Lord at work. Last week I mentioned how Joseph's sufferings put an end to any notion of a prosperity gospel in which Things will always work out for you as long as you have enough faith. Well, another myth of the prosperity gospel is that if you have enough faith, you'll no longer feel the weight of past pain and loss. I need to be clear here. I'm not contradicting what I said about being free from the regrets and the guilt and the shame of the past. And I'm not contradicting what I said last week when Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. But while the guilt and the resentment was gone, and while Joseph's heart had been prepared by the Lord to be in a place where he can forgive his brothers, the fact is that it was the suffering of separation from his family and all that he went through in Egypt that had made him, under the Lord's hand, the person he is now. His suffering is an unerasable part of the story. And for him to look back on it in a purely objective way and say, yes, it happens, but so what? It's all gone now, it's just in the past, would be to deny the profound and meaningful way that the Lord had deliberately sent him to Egypt and used his suffering to make him the man that he wanted him to be. So for Joseph to revisit the story of the past as he saw his brother Benjamin there, triggered by seeing all 11 of his brothers 
was also to revisit all the emotion of that story, both the helplessness and the despair, as well as the times when he could see the Lord with him. Uh, Many of us are familiar with Jeffrey Bingham, the founder of New Creation Ministry. Uh, Jeff had a profound effect on many pastors and many churches, including Siu Hyong and myself. Jeff went through incredible depths of suffering and darkness in his time as a prisoner of war in World War II. And it was in the lowest point in the POW camp that he became a believer. After the war, he went on to have a fruitful, significant ministry. He was involved in a number of revivals, both in Australia and overseas. Yet he himself acknowledged that the suffering of the war never left him, both its memories and its pain. And it, but it was this, it was the, the memories of the pain and the suffering and the depths that he went to that shaped his preaching and his ministry so that he could speak of things like wrath and love and grace and law and the sovereignty of God in a way that was based on the Bible but was a theology that was forged and formed and refined in suffering. That theology would at times lead to deep emotional expression like poems and songs which we sing from time to time in this church. Many of us here may have memories of deep pain and loss and grief and sin from the past. The Gospel says to us that we are forgiven, we are justified, we are healed and set free from our past. Yet rather than removing the pain and making life perfect, the grace of God transforms the pain and so it draws us even closer to the Father's heart. Paul spoke of sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings so that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So if you ever feel flooded with the memories of past pain, remind yourself of the assurance that you have in Christ. But rather than deny the pain, see it as a stepping stone to knowing the comfort of the Father and the hope that he gives in his Son. In 43, 33-34, I wonder if Joseph here is trying to give his brothers a hint as to his identity, by seating them in order of their age. He may be hoping that as they're sitting there eating, they'll be asking each other, how could this Egyptian know about our birth order? Unless he has some connection to Joseph. And why would he give Benjamin five times our helpings unless he knows about our family dynamics in which our father favours Benjamin over us? Or maybe he's just setting them up for later when he said to them, remember, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Whatever the reason, and we can't say for sure, something remarkable happens at this dinner table. They drank and were merry with him. Literally, they got drunk together. 
I'm not advocating getting drunk, but this comment tells us that there was a breaking down of the barriers. This sibling rivalry that had been going on for years, for decades, was broken down as they ate and drank and were merry together. The 11 brothers, really 12, although they didn't know it at the time, were there together, sitting according to their ages, not who their mother was or how much their father favoured them. These men had come to terms with their actions and the consequences of their actions and their battles of the past two years had been used by the Lord to reconcile them to one another in preparation for when they would then be reconciled to Joseph. But Joseph has one more test for them. They hadn't abandoned Simeon, but would they do the same for Benjamin? So he sends them on their way with provisions, again with their money, but with his silver cup hidden in Benjamin's bag. So what will they do when they're caught? Will they hand him over to save their own skins or will they act to save him? Notice that in verse 14, the men are described as Judah and his brothers. If you remember, Judah had pledged himself to Jacob as a security for the safety of Benjamin. So now he must step up and act. He must become the spokesman for his brothers. But Judah's leadership here isn't just a random coincidence. It actually foreshadows the time when the tribe of Judah will become the leading tribe among the twelve. And as we'll see in a, a couple of weeks, the tribe of Judah will be the tribe from which the king will come and eventually the Messiah. So we see a foreshadowing of what this distant descendant of Judah will do when Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Judah lays down his life so that Benjamin may live. This is, this is the high point of the story of Joseph. This Christ-like, self-sacrificial action of Judah, it seals the deal for Joseph. This is the third encounter where Joseph is brought to tears. He doesn't just turn away, he doesn't just run away into his bedroom. He says, everyone out apart from these men. Uh, And then he weeps so loudly that everyone outside can hear. If Judah was a shadow of Christ in laying down his life for his brother, Joseph is even more so a picture of Christ. Last week, we saw how Joseph's uh, journey down into slavery and prison and then skyrocketing to the highest office in Egypt was a death and a resurrection. And this foreshadowed Jesus' death and resurrection and his exaltation to the highest place when he stands with all of the resources of heaven at his command and from where he's able to provide the abundance of heaven to all who come to him for refuge. 
But Joseph's reunification with his brothers has another remarkable New Testament parallel and it's in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your, our God calls to himself. I could actually spend the whole sermon just showing all the parallels between these uh, two stories. This is the conclusion to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Like Joseph's brothers, the sons of Israel, the people listening to Peter, on the day of Pentecost, they're given a revelation that is both the worst news ever and the best news ever. And it's that statement, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The revelation of Joseph's true identity to his brothers brought dismay and fear to them until he extended to them the embrace of forgiveness and the assurance that behind all of their sin, behind all of his suffering was the sovereign hand of the Lord to bring them all to Egypt so that others could be saved. Well, the Pentecost's crowd's response to the revelation that the crucified and risen Jesus is indeed Lord and Christ is that they were cut to the heart, verse 37. This doesn't mean, as we may think of it today, that they were deeply moved or saddened. The phrase means they were terrified. The one whom they had murdered by handing over to the Romans and having him crucified, is not only the Messiah, but he's alive again and he sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority. The sign of this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by the breaking down of the language barrier as the mighty works of God were proclaimed so that all there could understand in their own language. The kingdom of God has come, is what Peter is saying, and the king is on his throne, but you're in trouble because you crucified the king. This is the bad news that the gospel must be before it can be good news. We stand before the king and judge as rebels, as those who shook our fist in his face and sought his death. As long as we stand in the rebels' camp, we stand condemned. 
So what shall we do? It's not a call for a technique or a method to get ourselves saved. It's not five easy steps to salvation. It's, it's a cry of desperation. We're lost unless, unless there's mercy. And then comes the good news of the gospel. Repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this same Jesus whom you crucified now offers forgiveness in his own name. He's full of mercy and grace because he knows that his death and resurrection all happened as part of the Father's plan to bring salvation to them and to, to the ends of the earth. Peter had said earlier in his sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The greatest crime in human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, was also the Father's plan of salvation. The Son's death and resurrection and exaltation would be the salvation of his people. So Joseph and his brothers have been players in a drama in which the gospel was enacted before their eyes and before our eyes. So while we may learn valuable things from Joseph's story about marriage and family, about faith through suffering, about reconciliation, about regret and healing, and wholeness. Primarily, we must not look just at Joseph, but as at Jesus, the new and better Joseph, the one who reconciles us to himself and to one another, the one who welcomes us into his father's family. Let's pray. Father, we've heard from your word this morning of the hope that you give, of the forgiveness of sins, the setting free from the guilt and shame and regret of the past and of the present and of the truth that your justice in this world is always a justice of mercy and grace that calls us to yourself. We've also heard of the the way that you take uh, all of our pain and suffering and experiences and use them for your glory and for our good. And we ask that as we face pain and suffering in our lives ahead, which is inevitable in this world, that we'll remember that you are using all things for our good and that we might have a faith that stands secure in those times. But most of all, Father, we've seen in this story of Joseph so far a picture of your son who came to us in weakness and frailty, who descended to the depths of our sin and our shame and our guilt at the cross, but who has now risen and ascended and sits at your right hand and has all authority in heaven and earth and that all that authority that he could use to condemn and judge, he now uses to give forgiveness and reconciliation. And so we sit here and stand here this morning and simply are recipients of all that you've done for us in him. 
We ask that we might know for sure that we are reconciled to you through him. That we might know for sure that we are reconciled to one another in him and enable us, Father, by your grace to work out that reconciliation in the way that we love you and the way that we love one another and our neighbours. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn which speaks of this great love of the Father for us in bringing us into his family.